From training to performing, join our Big League Conversation. Welcome to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast with your host, Eric Cressy. Welcome back to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Cressy, and this is episode 71. We've got a super accomplished and brilliant physical therapist on the show today. He's a guy who's set up shop in Indianapolis, and while he only works a little bit in the baseball community, he has some incredible general lessons that I think you'll be able to apply to that population, and more importantly, to think in the grand scheme of things about how you look at the body as a whole, regardless of the kind of athlete that you're dealing with. So you're definitely gonna learn a lot here and be exposed to some principles that you haven't seen elsewhere. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. It's an all-in-one superfood supplement with 75 whole food sourced ingredients to support your body's nutritional needs across five critical areas. Energy, immunity, gut health, hormonal support, and healthy aging. I'm an avid user of Athletic Greens myself in spite of the fact that I tend to be a supplement minimalist. To me, this is a product that is much more like whole food nutritional insurance as opposed to a true supplement. The ingredients have been carefully selected at the highest quality, most natural source. You get essential vitamins and minerals, digestive enzymes, prebiotics, probiotics, and that's the zero compromise approach from the company. It's plant-based, sourced from whole foods at the highest quality, so you won't find harmful chemicals, artificial colors or flavors, preservatives or added sugar. Um, really, it's perfect for folks who are gluten and dairy-free, paleo, keto, vegan-friendly, um, great for people who are intermittent fasting, all that fun stuff. Um, personally, I love it for, for obviously our athletes who don't get enough nutritional uh, benefits from fruits and vegetables because they don't eat enough. So it's a way to kind of plug in holes in diets. But also, I really like it for our college and professional athletes who may have complex travel schedules where quality food options aren't always at hand. Um, on a personal level, I'm a husband, father of three, and an entrepreneur. Um, we split our time between two states, and, and I'm also still an avid lifter. Um, so life is inherently crazy, and it can be stressful, and sleep deprivation is definitely something that we encounter. So I rely on Athletic Greens uh, for part of my immune support and believe firmly that it's, it's made a big difference in keeping me healthy in spite of how crazy our lifestyle is. Um, they've got a great offer in place. If you head to athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy, They'll get you 20 free travel packets with your purchase. Again, that's athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy, C-R-E-S-S-E-Y, and you can claim your special offer. Today's guest is an Indianapolis-based physical therapist who also co-founded Indianapolis Fitness and Sports Training, also known as IFAST, with Mike Robertson. IFAST has twice been recognized by Men's Health Magazine as one of the top 10 gyms in the country. As an author, he's published the book All Gain, No Pain, and he's also co-created the popular DVD sets Inside Out and Assessing Correct. As an educator, he's lectured extensively, including his popular offering at IFAST, The Intensive. He's also served as a mentor to many successful coaches and therapists in the private sector, as well as college and professional sports. IFAST Physical Therapy specializes in treating patients who have complex pain or injury and may still struggle with pain after previous physical therapy or even surgery. In this interview, you'll begin to appreciate why is some of the success and how these principles can help you with your athletes. You'll also understand why many people refer to him as the smartest man in fitness, and I'm one of those people, so I'm very excited for this interview as well. Please welcome to the show, Bill Hartman. Welcome to the show, Bill. Well, I appreciate you having me. This is exciting. We haven't talked in so long. I know. I am pumped. I've been been stalking you on Instagram and following your every move and picking up a lot of good stuff, which I think actually leads into my first question really well. So yeah. so I, I feel like we've known each other probably since, oh my gosh, 09 or so, maybe, maybe even oh, a little bit least. longer than that. Yeah. I, I, I can remember taking you to a game at Fenway Park when you were waiting for your hip replacement. <laughs> and I'll always... I'll always be so regretful that I dragged you all over Boston while you're hobbling on a bum hip. But <laughs> I, honestly, it's it's a it's a faded memory for me. I, I, I don't remember the pain at all. <laughs> well, you've got a new hip, so you're a new man too, right? There you go. Um, but what I love about you is that in that decade plus, like you've you've evolved a ton. Like you've evolved a ton over the course of your career, and I respect that that you know dedication to not just continue education, but the humility of saying what I did ten years ago wasn't cutting it. I want to keep being better. So I'm, I'm curious, how have your approaches evolved 
since you first got into the world of, of rehabilitation and, and strength oh, and conditioning? Jesus. Yeah, no, it's a, a loaded question, huh? <laughs> well, you're, 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 you're talking about 30 years. Yeah. And, you know, and it's like the, the way I always describe it is the, the therapist that I was when I came out of school, I would never send any of my patients to that kid because mm-hmm. he just he was an idiot. And and hopefully I'm just less of an idiot now, <laughs> more than anything else, because um, you know it, you have to constantly evolve. And so you know you you bring up the last ten years, and and I'll tell you that that I'll bring up the last month mm-hmm. of of evolution. So it, it's it's got to be in this constant state. We 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 can't know everything, mm-hmm. um, and so there's always an opportunity to get better. And and so. You know, to, to, to try to compartmentalize this thing into like a single statement or even a single conversation is just incredibly difficult. The, the thing that I would probably offer is that, is that the perspective is what changes over time. So the tools really haven't changed all that much. So, you know, there's, there's manual skills, there's exercise, there's, there's respiratory driven stuff, there's positional stuff. And, and so we've always had that. That's, that never changes. Um, you, I don't think anybody's ever come up with anything within the last 30 years that would say, Oh, wow, that's, that's really uh, blown me away because whatever it was was so neat, unique as a tool. Mm-hmm. What, what does inspire me is, is this alteration of, of perspective and, and an evolution of a model that tells me or, or at least informs me as to how all of this stuff fits. And, and I'm in a place now where it's never been more clear. Um, and it's just by paying a little bit more attention to, to some detail. And I, I think that's the thing that, that every practitioner really needs to appreciate is, is that if, if you don't feel that, that, that drive, then you're going to become stagnant. And I never, ever want to become stagnant. And so that's why I teach so much. And that's why, you know, I, like before we got on the call here, that's why I have, you know, three books open because I'm, I'm still asking questions and, and seeking the answers. And so, you know, the, the approach hasn't changed. It's just evolved over time. And again, the, the model that I use now is is much more directive than it has ever been. So that if, if anything has changed, it would be that. It, it almost seems like it's a it's a quest for efficiency, right? You have a, a collection of, of tools in the toolbox. You mentioned like kind of the, the, <laughs> the separate categories of, you know, exercise driven, the, the respiratory aspect of it, the alignment aspect of it. Is it, is it realizing that, that one category can give you better downstream effects where if the respiratory and the alignment stuff is good, the manual therapy skills can probably be de-emphasized a little bit. Is it just understanding how one category impacts the next? Right. So it's, so we, we, we used to look at things as, is is a, a hierarchy of, of sorts when the reality is it's a hierarchy. It's like, like there's always one thing that, that seems to be much more impactful. So we look for these windows up opportunity that where we can sort of enter into the system and, and make the greatest impact or we're communicating and interacting with this system. And, and so there's going to be certain times and certain circumstances where, where one uh, aspect of treatment will will show itself to be the the avenue where we can we can actually make that that level of communication and make the impact and make the the changes that that we're looking to make rather than just saying that oh I'm a this guy mm-hmm. right I I don't want to be that I don't want to if you brand yourself a manual therapist you've immediately limited your your perspective you will now see everything through that lens mm-hmm. you will see everything through a, a limited number of filters what I want to be able to do is have as many filters as possible to take this information and then then sort through it and then determine in in this hierarchy of treatment as to what is going to lead me to the to the best outcome that's a great point and and when you're chasing that that ideal outcome one of the best ways is to have a good roadmap, right? So, it, and I think right. that speaks to the, the concept of assessment where, you know, right. we often see people who have, you know, remarkable manual therapy skills or, you know, a great ability to coach and get, you know, the desired changes as quickly as they want or, you know, it's understanding what they see. But in many cases, it's, it's a, it's a roadmap that 
is is basically built on a on a faulty premise of not having a thorough assessment. So I'm yeah. curious, you, you one thing I, I know you've been an early adopter of looking at is infrasternal angle as a, a key assessment to drive programming intervention. So let's talk about what infrasternal angle is, why it's so important, and what your your kind of action plans are based on what you actually find with that assessment. Well, well, all, all due respect, and I appreciate you saying that, but but the reality is, is I'm a late adopter. <laughs> So, so if you, if you look back, so if you go back to 1934, Joel Goldthwait was talking about this mm-hmm. in, in 1934. Um, uh, and, and you're, you, you've, you've done a lot of work, uh, you know, uh, with, uh, with Shirley Sarman's mm-hmm. methodologies and such. And, and so she was talking about it in the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's been around for a really long time. You're an early Instagram adopter. How's that? <laughs> <laughs> well, was it, was, it, was, it, was it Tim Noakes? I think it was Tim Noakes that, that said that, that every generation forgets something and then the next generation rediscovers it. There you go. It's like kettlebells. So, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly right. Exactly right. Um, so, I don't know. I, I, if, if, if I'm considered the, the early adopted, then so be it. But, but the reality is it's like I, I think what it is is, is giving it some, some useful meaning other than the fact that, that we have some sort of muscular activity or whatever. What it is, what it is. So if anybody doesn't know what it is, it's the, it's the angle of the rib cage as it comes up to meet the sternum. Um, but what this actually represents, it is a structural measurement that actually determines how you're going to be able to do certain things. And so when we talk about baseball players or rotational athletes, this actually tells me, am I going to have this person that is a really good turning athlete or not? And then if he has to turn as as an element of the sport, how is he going to do that? And so, so there's a tremendous amount of information in that regard because because what this this angle represents is is a repetitive structure that that occurs throughout the human. So it's a really nice thing. It's a really big angle to measure. It's very obvious, mm-hmm. and it gives us a tremendous amount of information. Now, the the thing that we have to also recognize is that this thing is directly associated with with breathing, and so I need this this angle to be able to change its shape. Otherwise, I cannot acquire or achieve certain positions or, or movements that I would need as an athlete. So, so again, it's very, very useful, but I think that people get a little hung up on it because, um, it does have this, this element of novelty. So c- clearly the generation before ours has forgotten all about it and, and we have rediscovered it, so to speak, um, and sort of brought it back to, to some measure of, of interest and usefulness. But that's basically what it is. It's, and everybody has it. Um, so it's, again, it's a measure of, of how you are built and what you are built for and what you are capable of. So, so that's where I would, I would say that it's power lies in, in understanding it. And, and would you say, I mean, obviously we're, we're speaking on a podcast with relations to, um, to rotational sport athletes. So, um, we had Stuart McGill on, right? So Stu in the past Uh has talked about, you know, a lot of these athletes who are conditioned to be elite golfers, elite baseball players, in many cases, their, their spine structure supports that, right? Their, their spines are more pliable, bendy, they have smaller discs, things like that. Whereas your NFL offensive linemen are, you know, people with these, these huge discs to handle compression strategies. They don't rotate particularly well, but they handle compression amazingly. So, you know, to some degree, the spine is, you know, there's a little bit of natural selection, but there's also a training bias that in some way creates that adaptation, right? So when when you start to see infrasternal angles, right? Like, Mm -hmm. I I know one of the things you'll see is like a wide infrasternal angle. You know, we see them more commonly in these bigger, stronger individuals, right? You know, our, our, our bilateral beast powerlifters, you know, so I guess my question for you is if we take a lot of our baseball players, our golfers, and this is, a, you know, a debated point in the rotational sport industry is, you know, how much strength is too much? If we're tracing these, these huge squat and, you know, bench press numbers and all these, are we just driving that infrasternal angle wider on a lot of these athletes and, and, and causing downstream challenges for them? Like, is there a sweet spot on how much we want to push them before we, we shift into this a little bit too much? Yeah, there, there actually is. And, and, and it, it requires the understanding of a couple of things about, about how force production is created when, when you have an implement. So when, when we're talking about implements, we're talking about a baseball. We're talking about a tennis racket. We're talking about a golf club, et cetera. There, there is two points. There's two points in, in every rotational, um, 
um, execution or every rotational task. So again, we're talking about golf swing, throwing baseball. Mm-hmm. There's, there's two points where maximum force production needs to occur. Um, and, and they are exceptionally brief. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's so brief that if you snap your fingers, it's probably a little bit quicker than that. Um, so anything that supports the ability to generate that force output is going to be beneficial. That's why there's certain athletes that, that we start to train and we start to see these increases in, in force capabilities where it becomes detrimental. So there's always secondary consequences that are associated with, with every aspect of training. And so strength training is no different. It's like everybody seems to think that, oh, more is better. When the reality is, is the strategies that are required to increase my force production up above what is required now becomes a limiting factor in my ability to do everything that, that is required of me as a rotational athlete. So the minute I start to recruit um, certain musculature, which tends to be the more superficial musculature, so the big giant muscles that we all talk about and everybody loves to train and looks at in the mirror, um, those can actually become interference for our rotational athletes. But again, this is why we have to determine what our key performance indicators are. Like what is it that makes this person uh, exceptional and then gives them these abilities to, to be a successful athlete. The minute we start to see those deteriorate or, or like I said before, become interfered with, now we have a problem. So there is uh, how strong is strong enough. We just have to get to know this person over time. We monitor these things for change. And then that's how we determine how much of this force production this person is able to to um, uh, adapt to and, and utilize in the performance of their sport. And presumably it's impacted by the, the, the weight of the implement, right? What's acceptable for a shot put thrower is probably not going to be as applicable for someone who's throwing a five ounce baseball. There's different levels of this, correct? Correct. Correct. So, so, so let's just, that, that's, that's a, actually a very useful comparison because you think about the duration of the application of force yeah. in a shot put versus, versus throwing a baseball. Okay. So, so with baseball, you have a, a, it's the fastest movement capable by a human being up to 8,000 degrees per second in throwing a baseball. Whereas you can actually see a shot putter put the shot, which means that he has to sustain his force output over a much longer period of time, which is why working more and more on maximal strength, working more and more on, on hypertrophy based type of training is going to contribute to his performance infinitely more than say a, a, a baseball pitcher that needs to throw a baseball at 96 miles an hour, which, which happens in less than the blink of an eye. So, so again, we have to take into consideration, um, how, how this force is produced, when it is produced, and then how long is this force need to be sustained? Because again, in the propulsive phase of the pitching, we're talking about the, the split of a split second. Whereas with a shot put, we're talking about, you know, Let's see, a golf swing is just under two seconds um, from start to finish, but but yet the propulsive strategy is going to be very similar to throwing a baseball, whereas the shot put, like I said, it's going to be a couple of seconds long. Absolutely. So you know, we, we, before we moved on from the infrastructural angle stuff, let's talk about action plans, right? So you can uh-huh. you can figure it out like you have your you can have your narrow athletes, you can have your wide athletes, and then you have the yep. the ones that are in the middle, but they all have to also be able to do things functionally, right? It's not just the, what you measure at rest. It's, are they able to get in and out of these positions? So what, yeah. what are kind of your action plans when you start to encounter different, um, you know, uh, appearances on these fronts? Well, first of all, you're, you're, you're not going to change someone. Yeah. Okay. Let's, let's make that very, very clear. Absolutely. If, you're a, if you're a wide guy, you're going to be a wide guy. If you're a narrow guy, you're going to be a narrow guy. And that mm-hmm. doesn't mean that, that you can't, can't play a rotational sport if you're if you're the wider than average what we want to look for is dynamics and so so there's a, there's a way that i actually test this um in the clinic um as to how much motion that they're actually able to produce there is not an ideal angle um, in fact if there was such an ideal angle this person would probably be yeah. the worst athlete that there is because <laughs> they wouldn't be very good at anything they would be incredibly average they'd be mediocre they'll live to 78 years of age they'll have they'll have li- limited number of illnesses and 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 they'll they'll work a nine to five job and they'll take two vacations a year and they're going to be incredibly average people Af- the great athletes are not that they're going to be biased but the thing that we want to make sure that we have is is sufficient dynamics because the because the the 
uh, ISA is is representative of the ability for me not only to produce certain activities but to shift the 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 uh, the pressures and the volumes that occur inside of the body. This is how we actually produce movement. Um, because of that, if the if the infrastructural angle um, lacks the dynamic capabilities that they need, then we immediately have a limitation on all levels of performance. And that doesn't mean that they can't perform. So this is really, really, really nitpicky. But the reality is, it's like you can throw 96 miles per hour with faulty mechanics. Mm-hmm. And the concern that we have is, is are they using some form of compensatory strategy that actually may um, at some point in time create some measure of overload that they don't control well. And again, we're in, we're in a level of unpredictability at this point. So, so we're playing probabilities, um, under these circumstances. And so again, that's why we have to measure these things over time and we make associations with, okay, what is so and so capable of doing? Does he have normal dynamics? Does he have this, this physical capability? If he loses it at some point in time during the performance of his activity, is he able to recapture it? The thing that we don't want is, is for people to live in their compensatory mm-hmm. strategies um, under certain circumstances. We understand that, that when we're talking about performance, that it's entirely possible that the only way that they're ever going to do this is with a compensatory strategy. But again, these are the things that we have to monitor over time. Mm-hmm. And, and, and like I said, we just assure that we have this dynamic capability and that comes down to exercise selection. So the difference between, say, what we would do for, for somebody that is biased towards a, a wider infrasternal angle structure, they're going to produce rotation a whole lot differently than somebody with a narrow infrasternal angle. Mm-hmm. And so, again, our exercise selection has to support their capabilities, um, knowing full well where their strength lies in, in regards to either um, a, a force-producing bias um, versus someone that that would be more biased towards, um, say, an expansive strategy or, or a volume-based strategy, which would which would have a much stronger influence on the ability to actually turn more efficiently. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, when people hear about this, I know Greg Rose always uses the example of, like, you know, don't be that, that like, chiropractor is volunteering to, like, uh, stretch guys out on the right before the first tee of a golf tournament, right? You go and you yeah. mess them up because it's such a transient change what you're talking about doesn't do that. You know what I mean? It's, it's a very centrally driven thing. Um, yep. It's, it's, it's the feeling of neutrality that I think a lot of people have not, haven't found for an extended period of time where it doesn't create this, this like gap in, um, you know, automatic range of motions they can't control or, you know, something like that. It, it seems like it's a, it's a, it's a less like overpowering transient, uncomfortable feeling. I think a lot more of this stuff is, is it can be compelling in the moment because really what it is, it's a shift in the way you may coach certain exercises or, you know, you may change the angle at which you reach or something along those lines. So it's, it, would you, would you agree that in times it's very subtle? Well, I, absolutely. But, but again, it, it, it provides an element of guidance. So, yeah. so we could take, we could take three different athletes with three different structures. We can, we can show them this technically from, from the, the, the external visual representation. It's going to be called the same exercise. It will be executed very similarly, mm-hmm. but yet each of the athletes will have its idiosyncratic, mm-hmm. um, method of execution, which supports their physical structure. So, so again, we're not, we're not asking someone to go against what they are genetically designed to do. We're exactly. actually supporting their superpowers, <laughs> right? Which is, it, in, in all reality, that, yeah. that's exactly what we were saying. This is going to be your strength. Let's make this an unbelievable strength for you, um, because this is how you're actually going to perform at, at, at your, your peak of, of all performances. This is awesome. All right. So we'll, we'll move a little bit further down the chain. So as an, as an industry, there's a lot of focus on the, you know, the lordotic nature of the cervical spine, the kyphotic nature of the thoracic spine, and then the lordotic nature of the lumbar spine. But there's very little focus on the positioning of the sacrum. And you often, mm-hmm. you know, talk about sacral nutation, counter nutation in your work. So let's, yeah. let's dig a little bit deeper, um, discuss how this relates to the dip, different populations and how we might coach certain exercises differently than we historically have. Well, so you, you have to understand what, what the, the sacrum really, really does for you. And, and I would compare it to the rudder on a boat. And so, um, the, the direction that, that the sacrum is able to tilt and turn and bend and twist and orient itself is going to determine, um, how 
the, the way that the, the forces that you create on the inside of your body, which again, that's how you move. And so th- this is sort of like the director, if you will. Mm-hmm. And so if we can, um, understand how it should move to produce certain movements, mm-hmm. then we have to sort of help it direct those movements as well. And we actually do have an association with our, with our little ISA. So our ISA is, is an element of, of what I would call a specific archetype. So if we have a, a wide, um, infrastructural angle bias, we're also going to have a nutated sacral bias, which means that we're going to have somebody that's, that's really well designed to turn less, but produce high levels of force. Mm-hmm. Same thing. If we have a counter nutated sacrum, it's going to be biased towards our, our narrow, uh, individual. And so we're going to have, uh, somebody that is a much better, uh, turner when it comes to, to producing high levels of force. And so right away, we have we have a, a, another way to identify how we're going to try to influence this this athlete to perform at, at their utmost. If we were to compare, say, like a squatting activity um, with with either either bias, so someone that is biased more towards a nutated sacrum is going to have what would be more of like a hingier squat where you're mm-hmm. going to see the hips move more posteriorly. Yep. Um, they're going to be better deadlifters than squatters any day, every day, all day. Um, if you get somebody that is more of a counter-nutated type, type of an individual who, who relies on, on this expansive rotational capability, they tend to be better squatters than they are. They are deadlifters. They have a less hingy looking squat and they tend to sit down a little bit more straighter, um, down between their feet. And so right away, if, if you're not sure of, about what you're looking at, all you gotta do is call out an activity and you say, how do you do this? And then simply observe. Um, as far as, um, trying to, um, again, change somebody. We have structural limitations on yeah. what these people are capable of doing, but the power in it lies in understanding what these biases present and then allowing you to reinforce. Again, I, I always refer to it as superpowers because when we look at these athletes, they do such amazing things, but they do, they don't do everything amazingly. They do certain things and there's where we want to place the emphasis. It's not about trying to change someone. It's about reinforcing what they were meant to be able to do and, and always giving them the potential to, to execute at their best. That's awesome stuff. So, this is a baseball development podcast, so let's speak more yep. specifically to the development sure. of rotational athletes. Um, and you were you were track and field thrower back in the day yourself, correct? This, I was a javelin thrower. There you go. So you you lived it. Um, so I'm curious nowadays when you look at even thinking about what you did back then, but nowadays where are folks really missing the boat with respect to optimizing you know rotational athletes in terms of performance, but also managing them in terms of keeping them healthy? What are the the big rocks for you? Well, so, so I think you, you, you use the, the perfect term that this is a management process. It is an ongoing, uh, process that we have to, to be aware of. We've, we've covered a number of things already that, that I would say are, are important influences to understand. So once we understand structure and we have to understand that, that not every pitcher is going to, to actually produce I mean, if, if you take two guys that can throw 95 miles an hour, they're actually going to do it in two different ways if their physical structures are, are determined to be, to be different. Um, somebody's going to swing a bat a little bit differently because of their physical structures and, and so on. The thing that we, that I think where people really get carried away because it is such an easy measure to manipulate is, is in force production. And so most people would call that strength in the gym. So gym strength, um, is is my my greatest concern is that it's not appreciated as to its secondary consequences so sometimes those are good things and sometimes those are bad things and and what i see too much especially in the developmental players that we get that come through ifast is this overemphasis on on strength training. It's not that strength training is not valuable. It's not that it doesn't contribute to enhancement of, of what their capabilities are. What it is, is the, the blind prescription of, of, of activities. And I'm, I'm picking on strength training because it's really, really easy because everybody yeah. knows how to, everybody knows how to put more weight on the bar. Mm-hmm. What they don't understand are the consequences that are associated with it. So, so literally such things as, is you put a barbell in the hands of the wrong human being and you create a compressive strategy that flattens, that literally flattens out the shape of their, 
of their rib cage and you've just stolen the rotation from that human being. And so again, that is a negative secondary consequences under certain circumstances. It doesn't happen to everyone and it, it doesn't happen every time, but there's going to be a certain point in time where, where a certain amount might be too much if you're not monitoring those key performance indicators that actually represent what this person is truly capable of. And so I would say that is the A number one thing that we always have to be careful of because, again, more strength is not better. Just getting a guy strong is not always the solution. In fact, I would, I would argue that that if, if that's the attitude, then you're probably going to negatively influence more athletes than you're, than you're supporting. And this goes for any, this goes for any sport, not just the rotational athletes, because we always want our kids to, to stay as healthy as humanly possible. But, but the reality is, is that, that there is too much. There is, there is too much volume. There is too much attempted increase in force production and there is poor exercise selection. We cannot do this blindly. We have to understand how this movement is produced and what the, the consequences are to everything that we ask these kids to do. Do you think at times it's at odds with, all right, so, um, you know, I can't speak to javelin, but in, in the baseball world, right, we, we know pitchers who are, are bigger do throw harder, right? So there's a, there's a body weight element of it. Do you, do you mm-hmm. think it's a sweet spot we're trying to find where we have to give them enough, you know, body weight to, or enough volume to support the maintenance of body weight? Cause that's one of the biggest challenges we see is we, you know, we put 15 to 20 pounds on a kid in the summer and it's life changing for him. And he goes back and he's, you know, he's throwing six or eight miles an hour harder. College coach runs him into the ground for the first eight weeks. All that weight goes away and he's, he's back to his old self. Um, right. like, is, is that a, is that a double edged sword, right? Reducing the amount of load or is it just a matter of, in your opinion, like pick the right exercises, um, pick the right loads and, you know, and, and it should all work out in a wash when the nutrition right. is solid. Yeah. It's like, it's like, you know, it, it sounds like I'm, I'm like so against strength training when the reality is we use it every day, but, but we're very particular about how we do this. And, and we are very particular about, about the way that we prescribe these things. I have no issues with trying to put body weight on, onto it, to an athlete if it provides them an element of success. But again, you, the, the things that make them good at what they do are the things that we always have to try to maintain. And the minute we, we try to compromise those things, that's where the risk is. Mm-hmm. And so we're not just talking about the risk of, of, of reduced performance. We're talking about a loss of, of capabilities to produce ranges of motion that are actually protective of, of certain elements. When we talk about elbows and we talk about shoulders and we talk about knees, it's like there's a certain amount of motion that, that needs to be maintained under certain circumstances. Otherwise we are really starting to compromise, um, those, those joints. And, and so again, it's, it, I, I don't want to, to, you know, sound like the broken record here, but, but again, we, we, we have to be able to understand how this athlete does what they do. Mm-hmm. Look at those key elements and make sure that they are never compromised. You know, I mean, think about this for a second. And, and you know, you and I do this for a living. And, and, and so we understand, you know, the importance of it. But but baseball has been around a lot longer than strength and conditioning. And there was great baseball players before we ever got into the mix. Look at what they're capable of doing now, but also look at what we are capable of doing. I mean, in, from a destructive standpoint, yeah. if we're not careful. And, and, and so... You know, I, 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 uh, like I said, I don't want to harp on this because, because I am incredibly supportive of, of, of strength training. I just want it to be utilized as the tool that it was intended. And I think it's what, what you're saying is, is very much borne out by, you know, really feedback from, from baseball players over the age of 30. You know, I think if we, if we look at historically, uh, you know, players we know at, after age 30, right, recovery capacity is going to be compromised, right? The, just, you know, elasticity tends to fall off. We you know power loss in age is a, is a significant factor across many decades, but it kind of starts, right. starts then, you know, I think yep. we, we also lose, you know, just the extensibility of tissues to some degree. I'm, I'm 39 and I, I notice it. So, you know, I think there's a, there's a track record of, of major league veterans who have prolonged their careers by de-emphasizing strength training. Certainly at times during the year, maybe they push it hard for periods during the off season, but the, the feedback I've gotten from a lot of our, our most durable 200 plus inning guys is that they they need to train power more as they age even if they back up on their strength it's the it's the actual rate of force development and um you know elasticity and training that stuff that probably matters a lot more from ages 31 32 on right and 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 again that that becomes the matter of like okay what is this guy great at what is it that supports his ability to perform don't do anything that gets in the way 
and, and, and that's, and again, it's going to evolve over time because this human is going to evolve over time. It doesn't mean that he can't perform. It just means that he's going to perform a little bit differently. And that's all. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So we're going to move on to a little, little more like uh, professional development. So you recently had uh-huh. some really good tweets about the goal for early in your career versus late in your career. Um, uh-huh. And you talked a lot about like early in the career that, you know, uh, you needed to be a good mentee. And later in your career, you need to be a good mentor. So I'm, I'm curious to learn a little bit more. We've shared some some awesome people in common. Eric Otter with Memphis and uh, Mike Err is down in Atlanta now. Mike Roncarati yep. in Sacramento. Some wonderful, wonderful people. So I'm, I'm curious from your perspective, what are some key competencies that those individuals have had that made them better learners? Um, and, and what practical advice would you give to people who want to be good students, who want to, you know, not just acquire, um, you know, a lot of information and, and be mm-hmm. rising stars in the industry, but also, you know, to be respectful of the process and do it so that people want to continue helping them. Right. I, th- I think the, the, we all have, we all have perspective. We all have bias, even, even as a, a young professional that that's, so I, so I do teach a lot of students. And so I get them in their last second to last clinical or so where they've already evolved some measure of bias. They already have some level of competency. And, and the thing that I think you have to recognize is, is the, the reason why that you're with a mentor is to capture an element of, of experience or, or what is referred to as tacit knowledge that can only be acquired through experience. Because you lack the experience, you are dangerous to anyone that you interact with. Mm-hmm. But under the guise of mentorship, it allows you to, to experiment safely and to fail safely. And you have to be respectful of those failures because people look at failures as negative when they're, when the reality is they're just another outcome. It just helps you identify that, okay, something within this interaction was not as I had intended. I just need to question and find out why that is. A lot of times you don't have a broad enough scope to understand why you may have failed under those circumstances or why you have succeeded under those circumstances. And again, that has to be appreciated too, because a lot of times people don't question anything. They just assume they did the right thing when they're successful. The mentorship allows you to examine all of these. So so if you do a debrief after an, an interaction with a patient or a client, those elements are it's like, okay, what could you have done differently? What what could you have done better? Where do you think you had other options? What are those other options? And so the the, the toughest thing for a student to do is is number one, leave your ego at the door. Whatever you think you know when you are participating in, in a, a mentor-mentee relationship, you have to sell out to the mentor. It doesn't mean you don't question. It just means that you have to understand that, that this person is, is attempting to lead you somewhere of benefit and to provide you this experience in, in the safest possible manner. The best students that I've ever had are creative thinkers. It's not that they have this, this vast, um, wealth of knowledge but but they can think creatively they can see things from other perspectives so i'll give you for instance so i had a kid that came in he was a rock climber there's tremendous amounts of creativity in rock climbing when when you think about it it's like i have to identify certain handholds from from certain perspectives so i'm constantly looking at things from a different way physically that translates into a a cognitive strategy where he will start to look at things differently. Um, so, so again, the, the best students are those that, that are, are, are capable of being creative, but they are also fearless in regards to asking questions. And so, you know, I, I pass these kids off sometimes to other, other instructors or other mentors. And I, and I, and I say, it's going to be really different at the, at the next one. And the thing that I need you to do for me out of respect for me that you gave me is you sell out to that person too. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that you negate anything that, that we've learned, you know, as, as this mentor mentee, but, but you have to sell out to that individual as well. You have to give them the same respect and the same level of credit because they have experiences that I don't have. They have experiences that you don't have. And so again, your job is to acquire experience in a safe and protected manner where you're not going to injure yourself nor anyone else in the process. And so I would say that, that 
you know, if I could just wrap that up in a nutshell, that's my perspective on, on what this really is. And then what makes that really good student. There's a lot of gold in there. And then there that no doubt will appeal to everybody. And then I actually took an interesting one from that is you, you, you talked about like the, the first step is obviously acknowledging what you don't know. And I'm curious, like I, I had this conversation with, with one of our staff members the other day is, um, I think in times like I, I look back 10 years, I look at when we got, you know, Tim Collins started training with us in 2007 and Tim was five foot five, 130 pounds. And we put 40 pounds on him. Then he was all of a sudden throwing mid nineties in the big leagues. He was just a freaky reactive athlete. We put some strength in the right places. We got, right. we got, we got lucky. You know I mean? How, how often have you looked back on, on what you did, you know, eight, 10 years ago and said, I did something that I thought was right at the time and it worked, but it probably worked for entirely different reasons than I actually thought it was going to. Well, so, so here's the reality is that, is that we're, we're, um, there's a great book out there for, for anybody. Um, it's called thinking in bets. It's by Annie. Yeah. Lee. Great and, book. And she's, yeah. So she summarizes it so perfectly because she was a professional poker player. And, and what, what people think that, that what we do is, is like chess. It's like, Oh, I see a presentation. That means I use this move. Mm-hmm. And, and for us, the move would be an exercise or a way to program or, or some other intervention. When the reality is, is we're always playing probabilities. And, and so I'm, I still have no idea as to why the things that I do work. What, what I do understand, and, and it's not that I don't have a, a, like a premise in mind as to why they may work, but the reality is you can't tell because there's too many factors involved in, in, a, in any outcome. Yeah. So what, what we are doing and what we learn over time, and this is, this is the value of experience and this is the value of tacit knowledge, is that what we are capable of doing is narrowing down the probabilities of what will be the the best intervention in these circumstances, and we still miss. I mean, you know, it, it, like nobody nobody's batting a thousand here in in, in our world either. Mm-hmm. The the reality is is that is that what we do is narrow down the probabilities, and there are certain situations as you evolve as a as a clinician or as you evolve as a strength and conditioning coach or even as you evolve as a as a player is that you're just able to narrow down those probabilities. And the guys in the major leagues that narrow down the probabilities to three out of 10 are in the Hall of Fame, as they say, right? Mm-hmm. And so so for us, it's the same thing. We get better at probabilities. So even though we might not fully understand, you know, what, what uh, um, is happening during an interaction, because there is so many things to, to possibly consider, we are getting better at narrowing down those probabilities. So, so that would be my answer to that one. I like it. All right. So we always do a lightning round and this is an idea that's, that's blatantly stolen from Mike Robertson. Uh, Never so, heard of it. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> so, all right. So first one, name three books that any sports medicine professional should read. Your, oh your, man. Your top three, or, or even just give me a couple that you really liked of late. How's Dude, that? You know, I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm sitting here, I'm sitting here and I'm staring at, at about 300 books. In, in my, <laughs> so, so here's, let, let me, let me do this categorically. Because I think I think it would work work really really well. You need a really really good anatomy text mm-hmm. um, uh, beyond the beyond the apps. But but I'm I'm a big fan of books in general and and paper and things like that because I'm old now. Mm-hmm. Um, but but I would say that you re- need a really really good anatomy text. I think you need some some way to look at at how. The, the human system evolves. So we're now we're talking about embryology or we're looking at some sort of comparative anatomy or evolutionary anatomy. You got to see where these things come from, because if you can understand that, then you understand how these things um, behave. Mm-hmm. And, and that's a big thing that's missing because, you know, we, we get dead guy anatomy mm-hmm. at the wazoo when the reality is it's a lousy representation of, of how humans actually produce movement. And so I would say that those two things are, are really, really powerful and really, really important. And then I would say that you need to understand how a complex system interacts with, with, with the environment. And so now we're talking about things that, that fall into the category of dynamical systems or skill acquisition mm-hmm. or physics, you know, something along those lines. So those are the three big categories because mm-hmm. what, what they are is, is they provide this foundational base of understanding and then anything else can be superimposed upon that. And so I would say that those are probably like the, the three categories that, that need to be addressed because again, it's like everything, every level of expertise in anything is, is all based on fundamental understanding. So if you talk about an athlete, it's like they're constantly drilling fundamentals. And, and so in, in our world, 
the, 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 the physical elements of, of behavior are what we need to understand. So if you understand the interaction, you understand where you came from and you understand, understand how this stuff actually works, then you, there's, there's your superpowers, a strength conditioning coach or a physical therapist. I like it. Um, next one, you mentioned that you always have questions that you want answered. Where do you think, uh, what, what keeps you up at night when you stare off into blackness at 3 a.m.? You know, where do we need more research? What is it that you're excited to learn about now? Jesus, I, I tell you what we don't need. I, I, we don't need another research study on stretching. At all. <laughs> um, I could, I could go another lifetime, uh, uh, without that. Um, I would say, I would say that, that we need to, we need to start looking at, at the, the live dynamic anatomy and how forces are actually produced, um, with, with the consideration of the internal. What, what, what we've tried to do is measure things on the outside because mm-hmm. it's a little bit easier to do and it's a little bit safer to do. It's less invasive, but, but we have to start to take into consideration, um, these, these internal dynamics because one, they are, they are elegant and, and amazing when you get right down to the, to the, the, the smallest possible level about how this stuff actually works. Um, it is, it is magnificent and underappreciated. The, the, the problem with the, the way that things have been represented in, a, in anatomy, um, is that it's a bunch of levers and pulleys and that's not cool and it's not sexy and it's not even how it works. And we start to look at how it really happens. It is amazing. So that's where the research needs to go. I like that. I'm also curious, you know, I think to the, to the humility point from earlier, like a, you're, you're a super accomplished guy. You're extremely bright. I think, I think it's worth mentioning too. Like you're still a guy who's not afraid to refer out. You know, I, I think that's something that gets glazed over. You know, I'm, I'm curious, what are the things that when you see them are, are absolute, I, I send these out, you know, are there, are there certain presentations in, in new patients that you see that are absolutely, I need to, I need to escalate this to someone else first. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it, so, and it, and it could be, it could be, so I'm not a psychologist, so yeah. I gotta, I gotta have somebody that I can, that I can interact with there because yeah. again, there are behavioral elements that, that I just cannot overcome. Yeah. There are, there are certain, anything that, anything that qualifies as, as a specialty element. So, so my proxy measure for everything is movement. And, yeah. and, and so when I see an, an, an aberration of, of, what I would perceive as what this person should be capable of. And I, I, and I am not the guy that can determine, um, the, 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 the cause. Um, at least I can't narrow it down enough from a probabilistic standpoint. Um, then I need to, I need to find somebody else. And so, so again, we, we talk with people that, that, that deal with vestibular issues. We talk with people that deal with digestive issues. So all of that stuff comes into play. You know, especially when you consider the internal versus external, it's like those internal dynamics are just amazing. Um, and, but, you know, you get somebody with like irritable bowel, guess what? They don't have normal interactions internally. Um, and, and again, so, so we always have those professionals on hand and then we've got the typical, you know, I'm, I'm going through this horrible, miserable dental thing to help with my sleep. Um, so we have, we have, you know, I have one of the greatest dentists I've ever worked with, um, that, that I've had amazing outcomes with, because when you get somebody with an, like an upper cervical problem or, mm-hmm. or, you know, a mandibular problem, it's like, I need help in, the, in those respects because I can't make those changes. And so again, so um, I can identify when I need to do that, yep. but, um, but I can't, I can't always be the solution. Awesome. So, um, last one, you got to talk about the intensive and I full disclosure, mm-hmm. I need to get to the intensive. I want to, we even tried to make a CSP intensive happen and then COVID shut that part of the world down too. So we're, yeah. we're anxiously awaiting the world to come back up so we can, we can get to your expertise more conveniently, but, um, talk about a little bit what it is and how people can learn a little bit more about it. Well, okay. So, so I hate continuing it. Um, not, not, not in participating. I just don't like the structure. I don't think it's very useful because if you're in a room with a hundred people, there's maybe 20% of the people that, that are getting something out of it. And there's only five that are, that are probably fully engaged and the rest are just waiting to, to scoot out early on the last day to get their, their certificate. Because what you have is a manual. You have two days of, two days of, of teaching and it's very standardized. So the intensive is not that it is eight people jammed into a tiny little uncomfortable room <laughs> where, where we basically struggle for three, three days, basically. It's actually a little bit, a little bit longer than that. If you, if you can't, the fact that, that it never stops. So once we start on a Thursday night, we don't finish until we're done on Sunday. Um, everything is taken care of. So, so I don't let people wander aimlessly um, away from, from, 
this so we stay fully engaged that's why it's called the intensive but basically what it is it is it is presenting a model that represents what i think is the closest thing to reality that that we can acquire at the time to allow people to evolve their own understandings of how they're interacting with their patients and, and with their clients. And so, again, we, we're using a, a very uh, a very physical type of product because, again, the proxy measure that I have available to me is, is quite simple in its movement, but thankfully it is also representative of so many other things. And so, again, we just dig in. Um, it, it, it is application required. It's not anybody that gets to want to go cannot go. So I, I'll I'll open this thing up, and within 24 hours, I'll get like 40, 50 people applying this thing, and then I got to pick eight, <laughs> you know, because I, I want to keep it small and I want to keep it interactive, because that's how people learn. You you learn through struggle, not through sitting in a room for two days and then walking away with with. The one thing do you, do you ever do you ever hear that that phrase like, hey, if I walk away from this course of one thing, then then it was it was you know it was mm-hmm. worth the money and worth the time. I don't believe that for a split second. <laughs> um, I think that you should walk away blown away. And and so the the other thing that 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 I think needs to to occur is is follow up. And so everybody that goes through the intensive is now in a Facebook group. They are currently participating in, in a weekly, any number of interactions from case studies to videos to presentations. We do a couple of live uh, Zoom calls every month minimum. And so, again, this interaction does not stop. It is continuous because you have to be able to continually evolve as a practitioner. So the best way to do that is by interacting with with other people that will challenge you. So this is just this massive ongoing thing um, that has turned out to be a lot cooler than than I ever imagined. But but it, I was hopeful that it would become something like this. Uh, the feedback has been really, really cool, and I'm excited to, to check it out myself. Um so folks can find you on Instagram and Twitter. It's at Bill Hartman PT. Um, you're very active on both Twitter with a lot of like really just good, uh, I would say reminders, good quick hitter thoughts. And then Instagram with some really good videos. So it's a, it's a collection of great thoughts and, and also plenty of stuff on YouTube that relates to what we talked about with the infrastructural angle and the sacral mutation and counter mutation. So I definitely encourage people to check that out as well. Um, sure. Bill, this was awesome. Thanks so much for joining us. Well, I appreciate you having me. And like I said, it was great to talk to you. It's been too long. Absolutely. We'll have to do it again soon. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd be thrilled if you'd consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving us a review to read on iTunes. We welcome your suggestions for future guests and questions. Just email EliteBaseballPodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for your continued support, and we'll see you next episode.